the curator of horror, Chance Forshi here, to tell you about Ghost Eaters. Hey, everybody. My name is Clay McLeod Chapman, and I am the author of Ghost Eaters. Ghost Eaters is all about a haunted drug. Pop a pill, see the dead. But once you start seeing the dead, the dead can see you. That is Ghost Eaters, and it's on shelves September 20th from Quirk Books. Want to get haunted? <laughs> horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. There are plenty of horror cons to choose from, but most only offer the genre as writers and actors. We explore all the shadows within horror entertainment. From idea to product, there are many people behind the scenes, including writers and actors, but also artists, publishers, directors, and composers, and we're bringing them to you, as well as contests, movies, panels, podcasters, and much, much more. We've been going to conventions for over 20 years and are changing up the little things to make the big picture amazing. Join us Memorial Day weekend 2023 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come to the block party and meet your new neighbors. See horroronmain.com for details. I'm David Demchuk, the author of the experimental queer horror novel Red X. Many readers think queer horror is just for queer people. I'm here to tell you it's not. We have the same dreams. We have the same fears. Red X tells the story of gay men who are being taken from their friends and family by an ageless supernatural being. But it's also my story, and the story of friends that I have lost over the decades. Join me in Red X as we explore my darkest fears together. Red X is published by Strangelight, an imprint of Penguin Random House, and is available at fine bookstores everywhere. The Curator will see you now. Are you looking for conversations with some of the hottest names in horror today, like Eric LaRocca, Haley Piper, Clay McLeod Chapman, Laurel Hightower, Jamie Flanagan, and Allie Wilkes, along with indie horror superstars like Brianna Morgan and Joe Coach? Then you should tune in to Terrifying Tomes of Terror with your host, the curator of horror, Chance Forshi, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Dead Headspace. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we are joined by Gwendolyn Kais. You know what? Is that how you say your last name? Because I should have asked before we recorded. Yes, you got it right. You totally got it right. Because just as you were about to introduce me, I was going to be like, oh, no, I forgot to say how to say my name. But you got it. So take no take that, work. Brian Keane. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're going to talk about a whole lot of stuff, but her latest uh, novel that I was just telling her before we recorded, Reluctant Immortals, we, uh, I just finished that today. Amazing book, seriously. Um, so without any further ado, uh, let's talk about what got you into horror. All right. Always <laughs> a great place to start. 
I always say both my parents are big horror fans. So it's just always been there for me ever since I was a kid, always watching Hammer movies and Universal movies and reading Ray Bradbury and Edgar mm-hmm. Allan Poe. I always think it's funny because some people always think like Bradbury and they think science fiction, but I always think Bradbury and I think horror. Like mm-hmm. he did a lot of horror, like the October Country. And if you watch like the Ray Bradbury theater episodes, which totally scared me as a kid, some of those are so scary or were when I was a kid. Like I've seen them since and they're not probably that scary, but they were scary when I was like four or five. Absolutely. And so I always associate Bradbury with horror more than science fiction. So, yeah, it was just always there for me my whole life. I always say horror is like my comfort food. So, yeah, it just made sense when I've always liked writing. It's like, yeah, I'm going to write horror. Heck, yeah. That's great. Brennan, dive in, buddy. I, I want to pick up on Bradbury. I, I love that idea of just the way, just being able to uh, view him through and his work through different lenses. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Um, one, of, one of the first books that I read by him was The Martian Chronicles. And it's a great book, but it didn't resonate with me on the same level that like something wicked this way comes. Yes. So what hit you besides the October country? It was actually the short story that's in the October Country Homecoming, which is almost more of a fantasy story in some ways. But I always considered it horror because it's just this family of like monsters, basically. And it was sort of like the Adams family before the Adams family existed. And the original uh, story actually even had Charles Adams illustrations. So when it became the book version from The Dust Returned, uh, it actually has the Charles Adams artwork on it. So it's got a very Adams family feel. And I just loved this idea of this like monster family. And it was just like so neat to me. And it was like comforting and creepy at the same time, which was always like my favorite kind of horror growing up. So that was really my first introduction to Bradbury was that story. And then, like I said, the Ray Bradbury theater, which was like I believe it was still on when I was real young. And some of those are just weird. They're just weird and they're creepy and they're like very low budget. They're so low budget now in retrospect, but at the time it was just like creepy and strange. I couldn't make out, I couldn't understand it except that it was so scary. And there was this one I think The story is in the October country skeleton. I think Eugene Levy is in the episode and it's like, this guy's neurotic and they're like, they like take his skeleton and it scared me. And he's like, spoiler for this thing. That's like 40 years old. It's like a block. <laughs> He's like a blob on the ground at the end. And it's just like, it's so creepy. Like they take a skeleton. And I, I remember, I don't know if I've ever talked about this in an interview. I think I talked about it somewhere before, but I saw it as a kid and I was convinced someone was going to come and take my skeleton. And my parents <laughs> had to convince me like, no. And I think my dad had to comfort me like, you just die. And that actually comforted me more than being like a blob. I was like, oh, are you sure I just died? And my dad's like, yeah, you just die. You die. Nobody can take your skeleton. It's okay. So I was relieved. I'm like, okay, I won't be a blob of of Gwendolyn goo. I'll just be dead. That's so much more comforting. The logic is there. The logic is there. (laughs) I I, I just think of like her, how cute that would have been and like as as a father thinking of a little girl just or a little kid reacting like that that's that's adorable and it's awesome (laughs) it's so awesome (laughs) brendan i don't know how to follow up with that i i i just (laughs) homecoming is such a it's such halloween fair and i mean obviously it's in a book called the october country but it just it i it's arguably the halloweeniest story in there um, it really is. Yeah. It I really is. it's been 
a few years since I reread that and I'm totally blanking on the name, but I always loved the story with the uh, people who would like show up at the scene of accidents. Um, and I can't that one either, but that one's gonna like kill me. really disturbing too. Cause like, where it's, did they the, it's one of the creepiest short stories I have ever read. And you know, it's really yeah. uh, embarrassing that I can't think of the name, but that's okay. I can't either. I can't either, but I know exactly collection. which one you're talking about because it's just so disturbing because like this mm. idea of like, there's always people in crowds and it's just actually, it's the same people. Spe- speaking of Halloween, um, audio listeners can't see this, but that painting or oh, yeah. is it yeah behind you? That's really cool. I've never seen that before. Yeah. It's actually my husband's artwork. So yeah. So oh, cool. I, I actually always like to position myself right in front of it. Cause it's like, it's Halloween all year round. <laughs> yeah. There it is. <laughs> so he's, a, he's an artist. He is. He does some, he does some artwork. Like he, he does pottery. He does a lot of different things. He's not, he's not as much of like a, a show off as I am though. Like I'm always <laughs> like, Hey, going to be on social media promoting myself. I was like, my husband's like, I'm good to just sit here and do my stuff. Maybe never sell it. I'm cool. And I'm like, I'm a show off. So here I am. <laughs> yeah. But you, you can back it up. Cause you're fucking talented as all hell. Um, totally hope this doesn't come off the wrong way, but like you absolutely look like you, you, you like your photos are very like model esque. And I, I don't, I'm wondering if you ever considered a calendar. Um, <laughs> I'm just, it would sell. People love you. <laughs> that would be so weird though. Like here's my pictures of me. Like I already post enough, like, like totally again, show off pictures, right? Like I'm always like, here's, you can make here's money. My, here's like, here's me like looking super like, you know, pouty and all these pictures. And then like, if you actually talk to me in person, like I'm always laughing and always smiling and I never <laughs> smile in my pictures. It's like, it's the one place I don't smile. I'm like I'm serious in my pictures, but then it's like, otherwise I'm just like laughing. Constantly about you know, I do see it. I do see a problem with that though, because you're so 12 months a year Halloween that people would be confused. Why is there a jack-o'-lantern in February? <laughs> Why is there a scarecrow in December? And then you get the weirdos like all of us horror nerds, and we're like, Why not? It's true. pumpkins all year round my husband and i used to grow pumpkins in like our garden and eventually just got so overrun like we don't anymore but like i would try to keep the pumpkins for as long as possible and sometimes i'd get a few months but then like i wouldn't realize that they were rotting and then they would have like when we try to pick them up then they just go everywhere in like you know january but i'm like every every year i'm like how long can we make these pumpkins last (laughs) not as long as i want i've never tried I've grown a pumpkin before. That sounds hard. Um, so this is super random, but earlier in season one, we had someone on a comedian. I'm curious, do you know the name Matt Light? Because he's from Pittsburgh. Say the name again. Matt Light. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm terrible with names, though. So that doesn't mean I don't know someone. I'm serious. Like, I'm not <laughs> great with names. I try really hard to be. That's why it's like always scary to me when people change their names at uh, Halloween on mm. Twitter, because like that's like I barely can keep up with who people are. And then sometimes they'll change their profile picture at the same time. And I'm like, these are all strangers. I don't know anybody on my feed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so um, do you want to dive into your uh, upcoming book, Reluctant Immortals? Sure. Uh, can you give us a synopsis so Brennan and I don't butcher it? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> sure. So it is about two of the forgotten women of Gothic literature, Lucy Westenra of Dracula and Bertha Antoinette Mason from Jane Eyre. And they are the reluctant immortals of the title. They are living in 1967, California. And during the summer of love, Dracula and uh, Edward Rochester come back for them. And it's a fight, you know, battle of battle of the wits, I guess. See, I butchered it, right? Like, I was like, you guys should just do it. Like, if I was doing good in battle of the wits. I don't know. I guess that's good, right? <laughs> I, I um, I've, I don't think I've ever, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, I don't think I've ever said this to a guest, but the book, I really think that it should be studied in class because it's, um, it, 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 uh, it honors, it's a love letter to literature. This is how I took it. Correct me if I'm misspeaking. It's a love letter to literature. And on top of that, um, you know, it's, it's through a feminism lens, which it's important. It's really important because still, we still have a lot of work to do. And um, I want to know if you have anything to kind of uh, touch on, on either of those topics. Yeah, I, I actually like that you described it in both ways, both as a love letter to the original stories and then also as a feminist take on it, because that's very much how I approached it. I do love both Dracula and Jane Eyre. Obviously, if you spend that much time, you know, doing yeah. it and telling, you usually like the source material to <laughs> at least a certain degree. Yeah. And so it's also a love letter to, you know, Hammer films and Universal films and all the film adaptations, you know, in from the 60s and, and before that. But then it is also very much a feminist take on it. it. It really is trying to bring these voices of these forgotten women that were sort of pushed aside in the original stories and not given enough of a voice and really centering their narrative and really allowing them to tell things from their perspective. Is there, um, is there any like legalities behind writing a character in that world? Or is it because maybe, maybe not with those two, because they're like, really old books. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are both in public domains. Okay. They're both in the 1800s. They're both in, in public domain. I think it's interesting because some books have just been coming into public domain. So just like this year, there's been some Gatsby retellings because the great Gatsby mm. just became a, a public domain property. So it's like, it's interesting. Like people have been planning it. I actually loved when I saw, like, I think it was either this year or last year, Gatsby went into public domain and almost immediately like books must've been like queued up at like some of the major publishers to come out as soon as it was in public domain. What's really interesting about public domain too is now in the next few years, we're starting to get into the era that movies are going to start going into public domain. For the oh my God. And so that. it's like some of the universal movies in the next 10 years are going to actually become public domain. So it's like, I'm, I love public domain. I think it's really neat because then it feels like it belongs to everyone. Yeah. Like, I hope that like many years from now, like people will care enough about my work that somebody's gonna be like, oh my God, next year's the year that I'm going to link heist book goes into public domain. Like I'm going to be <laughs> dead by then. So I won't know, but I hope <laughs> that, that happens because I, I love the idea of these things belonging to everyone. It just seems like a really, a really nice idea. So yeah, so both yeah. Dracula and Jane Eyre have been in public domain for a while. So I we didn't have to worry about anything with that. Sure. Uh Brennan, I'd love to hear your uh your thoughts on any of this, man. I, I want to go with uh using those characters. Now, uh when you when you described the synopsis, I um 
I'm a musician. And one, one thing that always jumped out to me, uh, if you, if you know, Quincy Jones, he always described as the best, the best melodies is one that you can play with like one finger on a piano. Those are the most memorable melodies. And I feel like that applies to books as well. It's if you can describe it in a sentence and make me want to read it. And, you know, um, these two characters, uh, Lucy Westenra, um, and, uh, B from, uh, Jane Eyre, in 1969 hate ashbury like sign me up but <laughs> and, and i'm gonna admit here i have never read jane Eyre, so i went into this so concerned i said i'm not gonna know what's going on and i thought you did such a brilliant job of uh because i have read dracula mm-hmm. um writing it in a way that appeals to people who are familiar with the source material, but also not leaving people who are only, you know, tangentially aware of it in the dust. So I was kind of curious, what steps did you take to make it accessible like that? First off, I'm glad to hear that because that was exactly what I went into was trying to balance the idea of like, don't over explain it for people who are very familiar with it, but don't Underexplained for people who maybe aren't familiar with, especially with the specifics, because like with Dracula, I think most people have an idea of who Dracula is, but might not know the actual, you know, original story because it's been retold so many times. So trying to go back to that and almost having like Easter eggs throughout to really give for people who are really familiar with Jane Eyre and Dracula, but at the same time, kind of taking some of those beats throughout and really allowing allowing people I think Jane Eyre is fairly well known but I agree I think people are going to come into it and maybe be less familiar with Jane Eyre than with Dracula so giving enough that people people know you know the story and also one of the ways that that was kind of a little bit easier to do was the fact that they're retelling the story to begin with they're saying hey wait this actually isn't what really happened so in order to say that you kind of have to say okay well here's what the official story is and now let me tell you how it really happened so kind of allowing that to develop in a way that that helped for anybody who might be like i'm not really sure exactly the specifics of the of the original plot but then i was able to be like okay there's the original plot but listen that's not what happened anyway so let's go in this different direction instead <laughs> Now, I'm, I'm kind of curious if it was always uh, Lucy's point of view you wanted to write in, but I wanted to tie that in. And I hate to I, I, I never ask this question because it's so obnoxious, but I want to I want to know kind of where the seed of the idea germinated. It's just such an interesting idea to take these two well-known characters and, you know, it's it's public domain. You can do anything with them. Why 1960s, uh, you know, California, Northern California? <laughs> So it really started with my short story, The Eight People Who Murdered Me, excerpt from Lucy West Enro's Diary, which was published in Nightmare about three years ago now. And that was, you know, retelling Dracula in its own time period from Lucy's perspective. I'd always loved Lucy's character and I always felt like, you know, I wanted more from her character. I wanted to know more about her. And so I really thought, you know, I never found any of the adaptations to do that. I think Coppola's Dracula does the best job with Lucy. I feel like she She's, you know, really highlighted the best in that version than any of them. But even then, I'm like, I would have rather watched a whole movie with Sadie Frost as as Lucy. Like, I, I liked her the best in the whole movie. And so I thought, you know, they always say, write the story you want to read. So I'm like, OK, so I, I decided to write that short story from Lucy's perspective. 
And then on the day that it came out, I remember being like, oh, now it's now it's coming out and that's exciting. But then I thought, oh, I feel like I'm gonna have to start saying goodbye to Lucy. And I'm like, I don't want to say goodbye to Lucy. I want to write more with Lucy. But I knew I didn't want to go back and just write in the same time period because I felt like I'd already done that. And I was very happy with what I'd done with the short story. And so then I, I thought, you know, well, she's like this forgotten woman of Gothic literature and immediately Bertha from Jane Eyre jumped to mind. And I thought, okay, that that would be really interesting to see them together. And then I actually thought like, all right, well, if I'm going to put all these things together that I really like, what, what time period would I want them to be in? And like, I know a lot about the 1960s and I've always found it to be such a fascinating time period. And it was so tumultuous. I also think it's the most similar in the last hundred years to what we're living through now, just the kind of constant political upheavals and, and people really trying to push back with activism. And so I'm like, I feel like I could make a lot, I, I could talk a lot about what we're going through now, but doing it in a time frame that's a little bit almost easier for people to digest. Because I think a lot of times when you write in modern day, it can make people be like, well, that's not what I'm experiencing, right? But if you're talking about 1967 California, a lot of people who didn't live through it, it's like, okay, well, I can kind of go with this because I'm not, you know, I wasn't alive during that time. So I'll, you know, I can kind of go along for, for a ride with it more. So that was really just, I thought, let's put all these together and let's see, you know, let's plan out a story and let's see if I can, if I can make this work. And then I'm like, this is fun. I like this. Again, this is a story I would read. So, you know, it's always funny because then it's like, I was talking to somebody else recently. It's like, but what if nobody else wants to read it? That's always the fear <laughs> that when you do something really specific and you're like, this might just be for me, but let's, let's try. <laughs> now this is going to have a lot of fanfare. Um, plus, you know, Vietnam, uh, back in the sixties, you can compare it to even the early aughts with Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, yeah. I, I really like that you picked it during that time period. It's really just, it seems like a really carefree period, obviously among certain crowds and then other crowds, it's just uh, wouldn't want to be near them. <laughs> let's let's also think- highlight. I was going to, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll throw it to you in a second. I just want to really quickly highlight that if you didn't set it in the 1960s, you would have had to go with some other sort of cover design. Yeah. This is it. But this is this has to be it. <laughs> kind of looks like a Jimi Hendrix cover. It yeah. does. It totally it. does. It very much looks like a concert cover. But I liked what you said about how some people think of the 60s as being very carefree. Like, oh, it's hippies and everyone was happy. But it's like there is that element. But there's yeah. also the element of we were very it was we were in a war that was very unpopular and a very, very unfair war with with the draft and and you know, and everything else that was going on, there was so many other aspects of civil rights going on at that point. And yeah. so it's always interesting to me that some people are always like, oh, bell bottoms and hippies. And like, I love that stuff too. Like I literally am like, have my like hippie like garb on right now. But it's like, it also has a lot of, of darkness and a lot of pain for a lot of people. So it it is that balancing. And that was something I was thinking of as I was writing the book of like, let's have some of that kind of carefree element, but let's also make sure not to kind of just disregard how difficult that era was for so many people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Brennan, I'm going to lean one more time on you and then I'll take it away, sir. I, I'm so glad that you, uh, Gwendolyn, made the connection between kind of the upheaval of the 1960s and now, because I finished this and I was thinking about it, you know, trying to 
collect my feelings on it. And I couldn't shake the idea of just the mix of classic and modern. And then I'm you I'm thinking, you ding dong, it's it's not modern. It took place in the 60s, but it does capture a lot of the, you know, social thoughts um and just ideas that we're all discussing right now. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit to taking you know, these characters who were created in the 1800s and just how do you move them into uh, the 1960s but and relate to things happening in 2022? Yeah, so, yeah, that's such an interesting way of looking at it, that they were from the 1800s, then I moved in the 1960s, but we're also trying to talk about right now. That's true. All of those things are true, and they were all considerations as I was writing, but not quite like that, and that that's interesting because that's a lot of things, you know, dealing with it once. And so, you know, for me, I thought it would also be interesting to have these two Victorian women who are very used to the rules of Victorian society and then put them in the 1960s, because that is going to be, again, this kind of fish out of water. They're not going to know quite what to do with that. I love the show Mad Men. And one of the things I like the most about it is the fact that when we start, Don Draper is very much in his element. But then as the 60s go on, he's no longer as much in his element because everything's changing around him and he's sort of staying the same. And so I was thinking about that as I was writing this, the two of them are kind of in this almost stasis that they don't change until suddenly they get forced out of of this like old decrepit kind of sunset boulevard mansion that they live in and then they have to kind of deal with all these things that are going on around them and all of these upheavals that are happening and so that that was fun because there's that juxtaposition there and there's that built-in tension with them being like okay I'm used to how things were in, in Victorian era and now I have to deal with all of these you know things that were a lot for some people to deal with even in the 1960s like a lot of people were like what is going on with those kids out in San Francisco what is up with these hippies and so that that was a very interesting point of tension and was very fun to write as as a writer and then you know the whole time still thinking again about you know so much of what we're going through now we were going through then you know unpopular wars civil rights you know women's rights, everybody's rights, you know, there's so many, you know, civil rights that we're still dealing with even now, and maybe more so now in the last few months, which is really scary. And that's, that's, what's even more interesting. I wrote this book a couple years ago and, you know, you, you kind of still always hope that things are going to get better, not worse. Right. And now we're living through this point where things are getting rapidly worse in a way that none of us have really lived through it getting this bad this quickly. So it's it's very scary. It's a very scary time. And so, yeah, and things things definitely were back and forth a lot in the 60s, too. So that's something I keep telling myself that people were dealing with a lot of things back then and we came through it. So I'm always like, hopefully we'll figure out a path to come through it again. So One of the things that I do think about the 1960s is so much of that sense of community and sense of activism and community within activism. And that is something that I do feel like pulled a lot of people through women's rights, you know, rights for people of color, the LGBTQ movement. And all of this is really a sense of togetherness. And that was something I was thinking of as I was writing this of how can you show that togetherness and that that's the way through is for us to come together rather than pull apart. That's a lot of really insightful things. Um, I want to, for our, okay, so from Brennan and I, where we grew up, 
uh, we're near the Cape Cod and Provincetown has one of the biggest LGBTQ communities in the country. And in the 60s, it's actually a huge movement for the hippie hippie movement Um, because I was looking into the history of that place. And it's really cool how that kind of morphed into what it is today. And uh, I love going there with my family um, because just really, really, really friendly, um, really friendly place. And um, I don't know. That's all I have. I, there's no end in Brennan. Save me, please. <laughs> no, that's nice, though. That, that's that's exciting to me that there's still these places where that history is still so potent and that we can kind of see that through line to that time period. So I think that's neat. I think it's related. <laughs> and also, I feel like you guys can appreciate this and I can relate to your book, Moan Twist Away, where they, I, I looked up a while ago if there's any notorious serial killers from the Cape. And there was one. Uh, this weird, I've never heard of this town before. Truro. Truro. Yeah, it's right next to Provincetown. And uh, he is this dude that he killed like eight women, and it was a, 11 connected to that guy. And they were buried in his pot garden in the woods. But your book made me think about how, yeah, it's crazy. It's a sick bastard. His name was Tony Chop Chop uh, Costa because um, he cut up bodies um Ah. (laughs) your book made me also really think about how i've recently heard specifically with people within the writing community that um we focus on the serial killer and not the victims and Mm -hmm. i mean they're interesting because you know we can't understand how someone gets that way but yeah the victims are absolutely overshadowed and you made that point over and over again but not in a way where it was like um uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't a bad thing it wasn't like a speed bump in in the rhythm of your narration it was just it was excellent and it drove, drove it home every time so i'd really like to hear your thoughts on on that specific uh topic too yeah that that is such a, a point that it usually is such a focus on on the perpetrators on the serial killers on whoever is you know doing the victimizing rather than the victims and that is something I think about a lot. That was something I thought about right away when I learned the story of Dracula as a kid, that it was like this idea of Mina lives and Lucy dies. And so Lucy's kind of, I don't want to say completely forgotten in the book, because I actually think the book spends more time with Lucy than a lot of the adaptations do. A lot of times in the adaptation, she's just kind of thrown aside, whereas a lot of the book is them trying to save Lucy. And so, you know, I don't think the book throws her aside as much as a lot of the adaptations since, but she's still... She's the one that they sort of uh, make all the mistakes on and then figure out how to fix it later on. And she is very much kind of sidelined and not talked about nearly as much as the book goes on. And then obviously, Bertha, you know, the mad woman in the attic from Jane Eyre is very much just an obstacle that you have to overcome. She's very much, you know, thrown aside. And that always bothered me with both of them, because both of them, I'm like, I want to hear their story. I want to know what's going on there. And I mean, I think as a storyteller anyways, we often want to look and say what story hasn't been told to begin with. I mean, that's that's the story to tell, right, is the one that hasn't been told. And so for me, that was really where I was coming at the story at the novel from was, you know, how can we how can we reclaim these narratives? You know, what does it mean to lose the narrative to begin with? What does it mean to lose your own story and not not get to, you know, be centered in your own narrative? And this is something I mean, even the title story in my first collection on her smile and tether the universe really deals with that. It, you know, it's about it's loosely based on Sharon Tate. 
again, from, you know, very much associated with the 1960s. And Mm. so that always bothered me with her as a real life person who really, less so now, I feel like more people now actually know who Sharon Tate is. I feel like she's been reclaimed over the last few years. But, you know, before that, I felt like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if I would say the name Sharon Tate, a lot of people would be like, who? You know, or if people knew it was only because of the association with her death. And so, that that was really something I've been thinking about for a long time and having the opportunity to really take these two kind of sidelined gothic characters and really tell it from their perspective just felt like a very natural story for me to tell. And also one that I was just very excited to get the chance to tell. Well, that's why I really strongly feel that this is something worth having taught in class because um, I love history. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for example, I talk about this on some episodes when it, when it applies, but I'm fascinated by the Korean War. America does not cover that. It still heavily affects parts of uh, your, uh, Asia um, to this day. And I bring that up because we, we talk about a lot of the same old shit in school. And this would be a really good lesson on how you can see a classic story, but retold. And it's also appropriate in my eyes that cuz you see we see it all the time in our circles that um there's other voices coming out that aren't like me and Brett three white dudes um <laughs> that, that it, it is what it is but this is a really good example of you know hey the, you know this is why <laughs> this is why you need to listen to other people mm-hmm. um do you have any comments on that if not it's not a, no worries I, I got something else i'd like to bring up I I just very much agree. I think that there's so many different voices and I feel like, you know, we can, I think that literature is just better with more voices because we have, they can be more in conversation with each other. I think some people feel like, you know, oh no, it's going to delete this voice or white people aren't going to get to hear or you have their, but that's not what it's about at all. It's about all of our voices being in conversation with each other. And it's like, there's not only so many seats at the table, you know, like we can just make a bigger table. And I think especially with (laughs) horror, much of you know so much of so many great stories are still are coming out of small press you know i mean the, my book this this book is being released through an imprint of simon and schuster but all my previous work has come out from small press and i think that you know especially with small press there's, there's an infinite number of, of small presses right like there's not just you know five small presses and we're all competing for them so it's like i do feel like there's room for absolutely everyone and that all of our work is better by being in conversation with each other so it always you know, these conversations come up every once in a while and people think like, oh no, I'm not going to have an opportunity to get my stuff out there. And it's like, you will, you will. This isn't about like deleting anybody. This is just about making more room for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. What stories do, they bridge understanding and experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to tell either one of you that, but just in case someone listening hasn't thought of it like that. Uh, (laughs) uh, Brennan, is there anything you want to bring up before I move on? Or do you want to Well, actually, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, you talked about, I don't want to say moving from small press to uh, Saga, but you you do have a two book deal with them with Reluctant Immortals being the first. And I, I wondered if, you know, now that you are writing for what's gonna be a bigger audience, has that impacted the way that you write at all? 
I've tried not to let it because I, that, that was like a worry that I always had like years ago. I'm like, if I would, if I would ever get like, you know, a book deal that I knew it was, you know, going to be, have a wider distribution. I, I didn't want to, I mean, hopefully I'm getting better. Let me just say that. I mean, that's <laughs> definitely the hope, you know, that mileage may vary with people's opinions of that, but like for me, like hopefully I'm becoming a better writer. So I would say that would be the only difference is that I'm just trying to continue to hone my skills and become a better writer with every project, no matter where it's coming from. But no, I really didn't want to. That was something that I didn't want it to be like, oh, I need to make this more mainstream. I'm like, honestly, this concept was so like unusual. I'm like, I didn't think that anybody would want it. So the fact that it's going to be my first book, that's kind of out to that, you know, though I say that out to a wider audience, but I feel like small press books are getting out to wider audiences now anyway. So I feel like that's a very, it's a very different market than what it was even five years ago. I mean, I've seen so many small press books. You can walk into a Barnes and Noble and pick it up on the shelf. That's, That's just true. happening all the time now. So it's like, even that, you know, it's, it, it's different, but there's still, you know, I definitely small press, you know, big five press, everything's great in horror right now. I think we're just at a great point where a lot of people are reading horror and, you know, there's just a lot of books out there. Speaking of uh, indie press, uh, kind of, kind of uh, taking advantage of this, but it does include Gwendolyn. Me and her are in a table of contents together, Silent House Press. It's uh, Dark Murmurs, a co- compendium of horror. And um, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and yeah, it's written by uh, Jill Girardi, Brandon. Uh, oh man, I'm forgetting his last name. Uh, should have taken notes. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon Scott. Thank you, sir. And uh, Lydia Prime. So really excited about that. Uh, Elizabeth Massey's in it too, Philip Fricassi, uh, Rowan Hill, Mocha, uh, Pennant, and a few other awesome authors. But yeah, um, hey. I just want to say that I'm really excited to be in the same table of contents with you. Yeah, that anthology looks amazing. I'm so Oh, Shizmar. Me too. Sorry to cut you off. Shizmar's in it. I forgot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it just looks like such a great anthology. I'm so happy that I got a, got to be part of that one. Yay! <laughs> um, and you know what? Terrible segue, but let's jump from back in the 1800s to the six, 1960s to now, where we're talking this, I mean, the theme might as well be women's rights, you know, or equality. Um I don't know how else to word this, but what are your, where would you like to start with uh, where we are today? <laughs> like a scream into the void. Like, let's start there. Let's loaded question. <laughs> it's scary. It's, it's, I've never been more afraid. I mean, we've all been kind of getting increasingly afraid over the last few years. Anyways, I think, you know, I, I, I try to be very hopeful and I try to be like, you know, we can weather the storm. I'm always trying to be like that cheerleader in my head. Like, it's going to be all right. But, you know, right now it's like, I don't know what it's going to be like. You know, I feel like what direction our country takes in the next six months to a year is very likely going to determine the next 10 years, you know, even more so than I think normally. I keep saying to my husband, I've I've never lived through a midterm election that I think so much is riding on it. Like so mm-hmm. much, you know, who's going to be governor, who's going to have the house, who's going to have the Senate, you know? And it's like, it's, it, you know, it's always mattered, but right now it's like, it's like literally a matter of life and death for a lot of people. And again, it always is to some extent, I don't want to downplay that. It's like, I mean, things got this bad, you know, one day at a time. Right. 
but it is scary and it's a very frightening time really more so than any time I can think of but I keep saying you know we have a lot more activism now than we did even when I you know I was a teenager and so it, it I keep hoping that you know if we keep talking about it and we keep raising our voices and we keep voting you know I always feel like that's the thing everybody's like don't tell me to just go out and vote I'm like I mean no there's other things to do but we do have to vote too like that's really important that's really important so yeah just getting people out there to vote and hope you know keep keep talking keep talking about it but it is scary I'm definitely afraid more so than normal (laughs) do either of you think there's an actual chance that Trump could come back none of us want I'll be clear pretty much all my audience doesn't want that no uh, three yeah. all three of us don't want that i'm just wondering from your guys's point of view do you guys think that's a real chance you know what scares me is not just trump but also desantis i mean i heard someone describe him as trump without the baggage and i can't get that phrase out of my head i don't know what that is <laughs> it, it just meaning that like trump has all this baggage because he's getting like you know getting all this lawsuits and everything but like DeSantis Uh, doesn't have any of that so it's like DeSantis I think could be every bit as dangerous so like my hope is he's going to lose the governorship of Florida in November and then he's just going to look like the big terrible horrible loser that he is and that'll be a lot harder for his presidential bid if he's a one-term governor so that's like that that's that's my big hope there like I said this midterm could really determine a lot but I mean, I think anything's possible right now in America. Any any bad thing, maybe some good things. I want to be still be positive. I think some good things could still be possible too, obviously. But I think anything bad is on the table right now. I think this could go so badly, so badly. I mean, like I see people said, it's not that we're just now starting to descend into fascism. We're already on the first, you know, several steps into fascism. It's not like this isn't step one. We're several steps in there already. It's like... Yeah, yeah. I think we're when quite, we're not quite in the eighth circle of fascism hell yet, but we're getting there. Hopefully we'll stop soon. I think when our country's capital has a domestic terrorist attack on it and that leader isn't held accountable, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of a big red fucking flag. Yeah. Yeah. That I really thought after that happened that it was like, okay, like this is the worst it's going to get. This is really, really bad. We literally almost lost our democracy that day, but hopefully we'll be able to realize, okay, now we can, that's not what happened. It didn't really go. Some people are like, yes, it was obviously an insurrection. It was a coup. And then other people are like, no, no, it's not. And that's a very scary world to live in when you realize your assessments of things are so dramatically different from other people's assessments of things. And I don't have a lot of people, like, I don't know that I have anybody in my life at all, no relatives or anything that don't really call that a coup. I don't know that I, I mean, there probably is somebody, there's probably an aunt or uncle somewhere, but I don't talk to them with any like regularity. So it's like, all I see it is online, you know, especially since during the pandemic, like my husband and I, my, we both work from home. So we're pretty isolated, like in our, in our <laughs> rural farmhouse. But talking about rural areas, there's a lot of still Trump signs up and like fuck Biden flags, which is like insane to me. Like it's it's been going on for so long now that the that the fuck Biden flags are starting to like fade in the sun. I guess they're probably not made very well, so they just faded <laughs> anyways. They were very low quality fuck Biden flags. Made, made in China. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, right? Like these people have all these terrible things to say about other countries, but then it's probably made in China. 
Yeah, it's it's intense. It's an intense. It's even just driving around our town. We, I could not have imagined 10 years ago, like people having fuck anybody signs. But now it's like, yeah, it's it's definitely something. It's definitely very scary right now. It's crazy. My parents just retired in Florida, down to Florida. And um, I was driving on a main highway, saw this massive what should have been an American flag was a Confederate flag. And I saw another Confederate flag at a house. Uh, just, I don't understand that because they were not part of this country yet. They're saying that's my heritage and being private. Like, do you know the background of that? And I don't get it. I don't understand how people don't say it's a coup. Yeah. We're, and I've heard military people say that too. And that makes me really sad and scared because military people are supposed to protect the country from domestic or foreign terrorists. They, yeah. Last thing, and then I'll shut the hell up about this. But when a group does something that Nazi Germany and the Confederate Army couldn't do, and they're only not getting hurt because they're pretty much all white, that's a flag. That that's that's like something you should reevaluate your your uh, truths with, or whatever you want to call it. So I didn't think we were going to talk about this. So thanks for uh, playing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I feel like this is like the main thing I talk about with my husband anymore. I feel like it's like the, the major topic of conversation is just like, how how did we get here? And like, I, I know intellectually all the steps we took, but then emotionally, sometimes it's still like, how how did we get to this point? Like, I didn't. I always felt like we could, like it was always something. I was always afraid of the Supreme Court, for example. I always said, all it really takes is five people with a bad agenda and Mm -hmm. they can destroy this country. It always seemed dangerous to me, but it was like all these years, it has more or less worked. And I've even heard people describe it as the more adult branch of government because they don't tend to have the drama that the presidency and, and Congress have. But it always scared me. I remember even when I was a teenager, I'm like, what would it really take is five people with, with, you know, ill intentions and they could really destroy the country. And that's really what's happened. Kind of like six now. Right. Cause you know, there's six of them that I, I don't agree with most of their rulings. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now it's we just, only really have three that are decent. So <laughs> it's just really weird. Cause we all want to think that we want the best for our children, but like how, how, how can you say that with a smile when you got this guy that's doing shit that Hitler did in his early days before he tried killing an entire race of people? And that's yeah. not hyperbole. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It, that's what's so frightening about it is it's not a hyperbole. It really is Nazism. It's really the exact same tactics as, as Nazism. So it is very terrifying to live through it really is and like you were saying about confederate flags there are sometimes confederate flags here where i live and we're pennsylvania we're north of like we were a part of the north what what is why would anyone have that connection like you i don't understand it in the south but like i'm like you're part of the north you this was never here this was like never here (laughs) it's not okay in the south and like you said about (laughs) florida it wasn't even part of it but it's it's everywhere and i'm sure like if i went back to ohio where i grew up i'm sure there's confederate flags there about it yeah i think when i drive over to my parents house we drive through a rural area and there's confederate flags there and it's like you weren't part of you weren't part of the south it's just yeah it's weird it's so weird to me that it's just i live in a small new jersey town and uh there's trump flags in a few places and i don't get it because like i i i pridefully say to my wife um that we're in a really diverse town it's Mm -hmm. Every walk of life is here. It's a beautiful thing because we all, for the most part, get along and greet each other, hold doors and shit like that. And um, 
it's really weird to see that, you know, uh, I'm not saying all Democrats are good. I don't like most politicians, but yeah, yeah, kind of can't say Republicans are. uh, (laughs) I'm going to bite my tongue. I can't say anything nice, so I'll leave it there. Brandon, t- take us away to somewhere else, man. I'm, I'm just take us somewhere out here. <laughs> yeah. So I was gonna say I want to throw one more thing in, but uh, go ahead, throw it off to you know sunnier planes. Um, Are you gonna talk about your uh, people in your small town in Mass? Where- no, no, I'm not. But uh, I, I'm kind of curious because I I was. Um, this is going to sound rude. I'm so sorry if it sounds rude, but I was a little surprised because you've just been very, very optimistic when talking about this. And um, online, there's been a lot of righteous anger. And I and I really want to focus on righteous. You know, I think that's a, an unbelievably appropriate response. Um, how do you balance that righteous anger with optimism? Not always as well as I'd like to. I I do. I do really try to be optimistic and I have tried for the last few years to be optimistic. And it has, I do feel like I've been taxed kind of to the limit on it because part of me has always wondered, do the things we say online, especially when we're talking to other people that we know agree with us, because most, most of the people that are going to be looking at my social media are pretty liberal. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. not, you know, if I say I don't like Trump, Everybody else doesn't like Trump too, right? So it's like, I've always thought how much of talking when you're in that echo chamber, and I'm fine with being in an echo chamber in this regard, because like some people are like, oh, it's bad. I'm like, I don't want to be around people who wave Confederate flags. This is not, this is not, I'm not self-selecting into that group. No, thank you. And so I'm always like, you know, do I need to tell people the latest news? Do they need to hear this from me? Are they already hearing it? Can I talk about something more positive that that maybe can can get us away from it just for a second to allow us to recharge? Because I do think there's a lot to be said for not having every moment consumed with these things, because then you can't recharge, you get worn down, and then it's harder to even kind of fight back against it. But then it's like, as time's gone on, it's just, it has been very, very taxing with just being like, how do you continue to be optimistic on, under these circumstances? I do think the main thing is that sense of community and is that sense of coming together and seeing that we do have power in numbers. We really genuinely do. And being able to come together and being on the same page with things and, and continuing to, to rally and, and to fight. And, you know, and what fighting looks like differs from one person to another. Sometimes it is going out to a protest. Sometimes it's donating if you have the money to. Sometimes it's sharing something if you don't have the money to donate, but maybe you can, you know, you know, raise the profile of something that maybe somebody else can donate. You know, it's it's also about just talking about it. Sometimes it's just about giving people the space to be able to talk about what they're experiencing that alone can can be helpful and i also think writing is is a form of resistance i think it very much can be i i especially think when you're writing about these things and you're saying hey you know i the, the thing is, like, if fascism fully comes completely in its worst form to America, we're not going to be able to just write whatever we want anymore. Right. I mean, it's not, you know, literature will absolutely be censored. It, it's part of, you know, what fascism does. So it's like this is this is our actual livelihoods are threatened. So when people don't care at all, I'm always like, you'll care whenever you can't write anymore or when it's, you know, when when it's censored more. I, I it was 
it was sad to me because recently I went to an HWA Pittsburgh meeting and it was so much fun. And it was the first time I'd gotten together with everybody since before the pandemic. And I, I'm sitting there in this group and I'm thinking if everything goes as badly as it could, this would be considered like a group of dissidents, right? We'd be considered a group of, of people that, you know, revolutionaries and that we wouldn't even be allowed to meet anymore if things got as bad as they could get. And it was like this Ooh. kind of feeling of complete terror to me because I never felt that that would happen in America. As bad as I think things could get, I always thought we'll always be able to have, you know, freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. And now I'm like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. So it is this kind of balancing of still trying to be optimistic while being aware that, you know, rights are really getting stripped away and we don't even know what direction that they'll necessarily go next. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's such a good point where on the surface saying that, you know, an H, a, a Pittsburgh HWA meeting saying that, oh, well, this is a group of dissidents and there's a potential future where this could be um, not allowed. Saying that on the surface sounds dramatic, but at the same yes. time, it goes back to Pat's earlier question. Do you think Trump could win again in 2024? We thought it was ridiculous that he could win in 2016. Nobody thought that could happen until it did. Nobody thought that the Supreme Court would go as far as they did until they did. Mm-hmm. I, nothing is off the table, you know, and it's like it's it's gotten to the point where when we say if we keep going in this direction, this could happen. There's not that much that's too ridiculous to put in the end of that sentence anymore. Exactly. To, to a degree that I just don't think most of us could have imagined 10 years ago. And in some, some, to some degree, even a year ago, like even a year ago, I still thought like, okay, things got really bad, but we're going, we're going to start fixing these things now. And it's like, that's not, we still can fix them, but I definitely think right now we're in the stage where they're just breaking more things that we have to then fix rather than we're in the kind of fixing stage. But hmm. it, feels, it feels like we're some middle, uh, I don't know specific countries, but Middle Eastern countries where like my brother-in-law, he went over to uh, Afghanistan. Um, he's a Marine uh, back in the aughts, early aughts. And he used to tell me about kind of like a few things and it's just, it's, uh, man, it's nothing new. I'm sure to you guys, but talk about stripping away rights. Uh, that's kind of what it feels like when, you know, um, neighbors can rat out people, women having abortions. And like, I have a, I had a clue. I said this maybe on two episodes, but I had a close loved one that had that when she was in her younger twenties. And I gotta be honest, uh, I'd want to kill anyone that would try to have the audacity to do that because they were pro. She had to walk by protesters, mm-hmm. and a lot I of mean, people, yeah, that's not well, right. It's not right. I remember that's gross. I, yeah, it's horrible. I remember when I worked in downtown Pittsburgh at an arts organization down there, and I just walk around the block on my my lunch break, and there were so the Planned Parenthood was like right down the block, and I'd have to walk past these people, and it was like. I'd always like give them dirty looks and I'd walk right past them. So they'd have to kind of step back. Cause it's like, just get out of the way. People are just literally trying to walk here, leave people alone. But yeah, I think really what we're seeing right now in America very much is just any, any country that, that is becoming so unstable in, in their government. You know, we already talked about Nazi Germany, but there's any, any government that can, can get unstable. It really, it, the stability is only dependent on, on, you know, who we elect and the leaders themselves and what they do. So it's like, I think things that we thought were only going to happen in other countries, it was always possible, I guess, that it could happen anywhere. And that's been something that, you know, you want to believe that you're living in a more stable world. And it's like, it's not really stable anywhere. 
anywhere. Any this could happen anywhere at any time, especially it's like like I think I said earlier, it just happens one day at a time. And sometimes it's it's hard to see all the specifics of what's happening until it's like this larger constellation of terrible things. <laughs> Hopefully this births some kind of uh in a positive light, some kind of renaissance of writers or other artists, you know. Um I'm thinking of like uh, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Neil Young, when they were. Yeah, there there was a lot of great protest work, you know, in in the 60s. And that is something that, you know, I think we could definitely use, you know, a lot more. And we have some, there's certainly some, you know, very much activism work out there, but even more, write more, everyone, if you're listening, write more, write more from that kind of activist perspective and really talking about what's going on. Sure. Right. Angry. <laughs> and I, right angry. I like it. <laughs> I, I, uh, I wanted to focus on how we were talking about um, kind of how we interact online. Uh, like, I'm sure we've all I've gone carried away online and then I had to step back and realize, like, that's not me. What the fuck? Reevaluate things. <laughs> and I'm sure most people listening can hear that. But. You know, we we uh, understand what because we've lived it, what the world was like before we are all interconnected like this with um, instant gratification. So I'm really curious, first, Gwendolyn, then you, Brennan, I'm really curious what you guys, what your thoughts are or theories are on like the next generation. Like my son's only two and a half, so he only knows this. And then further down the line, if the metaverse, for those that don't know, metaverse is what's after the internet. It's when it's ready player one, your senses and everything are in a virtual world, but it all feels real and you can't tell the difference. So I'm curious what your thoughts are, Gwendolyn, on, on that, how that do you, because for me, I feel like that's going to lead to ultimately uh, short-term gratification and addiction. And ultimately it's going to lead towards a lot of dependence on something we should never have fucked with in the first place, which leads to depression and anxiety and all that fucked up stuff. So what are your thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's interesting that you brought up the fact that, you know, most of us, you know, if you're, I don't even know what age anymore, but like certain, you know, definitely millennials can remember a time, you know, before we were this interconnected. And so it's interesting to kind of say, you know, I remember before like Facebook and Twitter and MySpace, which is now like mostly forgotten, but I remember MySpace. It's still alive. I was on. (laughs) And, you know, as opposed to uh, like my goddaughter is, um, she's my best friend from high school's daughter. And so she's like 16. She just got her license. So congratulations, Cynthia. And, but you know, she's, she's not gonna, she's not remember a time before this stuff. This stuff has always been around for her. And I think that that's, that's such a different world. And it's hard sometimes for me to imagine what that's like. I mean, I, you know, you try to use empathy the best you can and try to, but at the same time, like we grew up knowing a world without that and knowing a world where if you didn't know the song lyrics to a song, for example, you'd have to go into a record store and sing it to somebody and hope that they know it or wait for it to come on the radio, as opposed to now where it's so much easier to find it. And some of that is good. Like some of it's like, do you really want to spend like two weeks with a song stuck in your head and you don't know who it is? It is. It does. (laughs) like help to you know not have as much wasted time maybe but also like you said I mean there is a kind of instant gratification and again sometimes that's fine not everything has to be you know delayed gratification or difficult but I I do think that we can get really caught up in it 
I don't know what to do. I don't have kids. So I'm, I'm not like immediately presented with this issue of having to be like, I've got to figure out how to help my kids balance this, you know? And I actually think my goddaughter, when I talk to her, she does such a great job of balancing it anyways and being aware of it. So like may, maybe they'll figure it out on their own. Maybe they'll understand it maybe better than we can. Maybe we have more trouble with it because we got sucked in later. Maybe they had, they know we got to keep this separated. I don't know. I don't know, but it is something that it, it, I can't imagine having grown up like online bullying. I mean, bullying was bad enough in high school yeah. without people being able to find a new medium, like a new place to do it. Like I can't fathom that. That's terrifying to me. Yeah. Brennan, Brennan and I talked about this, I think earlier today, our, us three, you know, our age group or whatever, our digital footprint doesn't start until, mm-hmm. you know, maybe our teens or later teens or twenties, whatever. Yeah. Like my kids already got like a profile just for like not internet stuff, but just for like games to, mm-hmm. to teach them mm-hmm. how to count and stuff. And I mean, you think about this, you could, and Chuck Palahniuk brought this up on, uh, I forget, this is horror maybe. Um, he brought this up on an interview where he was talking about how there's going to be more dead profiles, like resu- mm-hmm. AI profile, like. Mm-hmm. You, for those listening that might not get it, like if you die, then because of all that digitally saved data about you, you can recreate that person and there'll be more dead. Yeah, more dead profiles than living actual living people's profiles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was only like 20 years from now. That's fucking crazy. Wow. Yeah, that, that's such an interesting thing. I remember a few years ago, like I decided before I deleted, like I decided to delete a bunch of things. Like there wasn't anything on them, but it just bothered me because I was always scared. What if somebody would get in and hack something and it's got my name on it and they put something on there and I'm like, no, no, that's not me. And so I remember like just having like this like thing of like, I wanted to delete an old email, but I decided to try to delete anything that was associated with that email because then I could still, re- you know, reset the passwords and just like going back like to this old photo bucket, you know, know photos I'd forgotten I even had that I don't know how if I deleted my MySpace profile and it was really an interesting kind of thing going through this and being like wow this is this is who I was at 20 and there wasn't anything like it was just like me like at clubs and stuff it was actually really boring but like (laughs) it was it was still this interesting thought of like you said younger people are going to have this basically their whole lives. Mine started really when I was about 20 and I got like a MySpace profile and started really using the internet more. And it's like, but you know, other people are going to start way earlier than that. And even then I think I wasn't doing it as much as like, you know, I have now I have a lot, you know, bigger presence online. So it is an interesting thing of, and then like, like you said, then people die and then, or even if they don't die, they just stop using certain things. And there's all these dead profiles everywhere. And it's just, no, it's like a graveyard. It really is. It's a digital graveyard. It's a cemetery we're creating at the internet. They're all in the clouds. <laughs> That's a lot of weird things. To, I love it. When I use the word weird here, it's just a, it's a, a fun word. I like it because weird inspires. Brennan. <laughs> I, one thing I'll add to the conversation, because, you know, my my day job is teaching elementary music, but I have about five classes of technology, which is coding, which is, you know, the kind of popular thing right now. I'm sure we won't do it in a few years, but a lot of it is digital citizenship too, teaching kids how to appropriately use the internet and computers and all that good stuff. And we start as early as first grade. And I think this is a good thing 
trying to imprint the idea that everything you do online matters, that, you know, you, you have to assume that everything you do online is permanent. And I think the reason we were having that conversation about digital footprints starting later is because I, I'm glad that, you know, 13 year old me didn't what wasn't able to like put things up that'll last forever because 13 year old me was an idiot um uh but it was 33 year old me man (laughs) (laughs) but but that's the reality now is you know like my my oldest son is 12 and he has his own phone and he Mm -hmm. but we we don't put him on social media yet but eventually we're gonna cross that path and i don't know what to do with that you know it's like you you instruct as much as you can that, you know, everything matters. And, you know, like you mentioned, cyberbullying, like it, it was bad enough at school. No, now they can follow you home. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a scary world. I have, you know, I have nothing useful to, to put forward as a solution, but it's, it's scary. I do like the idea that, like you said, that you're teaching at a very young age. And I love that word, that term digital citizenship. I don't know that I've ever heard that. I really like that idea of, you know, you are a citizen of the Internet. And and I do think it's good to explain that it's permanent because I do think that to a certain degree, we treated it like the Wild West as millennials. We kind of just went into it and was just like, whatever, anything goes. And then it was like, oh, that wasn't the right way to be. Like I said, I'm just grateful when I went through it that it was just like pictures of me at clubs. Because I said to my husband, like, what if it's something terrible? He's like, you don't ever do anything terrible. What are you even talking about? Because he's known me since I was like 20. So he's like, I don't even understand what you think is going to be there. I'm like, I don't know. And then it was just like me with pictures of clubs. Like that was it. It was honestly boring. But I was like, you know, it was this thing. Because like you said, like when you're young, you just do ridiculous things. And it's like, if you don't think about the permanence of it, you know, Mm. it it can be, it's great that you're teaching it at a young age to be like, take this seriously. This is a serious, it is a serious thing. And it wasn't treated like that with people our age. I don't think it was really not. It was just kind of like, whatever, it's all good. We don't even really understand this social media (laughs) internet thing yet. Let's just have some fun. And it's like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, date, Dateline when uh um oh god what was the show Cat, to catch a predator mm-hmm. uh they would talk about that like Stone Phillip Phillips would talk about you know what to avoid on MySpace it was specifically MySpace and how predators can get on there that's common knowledge now but yeah it kind of yeah. wasn't with us um yeah it really wasn't it was something that like you know you didn't necessarily think about it all the time of like what are you putting out there and who can see it and how scary that was you know it was not it was just like oh i'm just putting this up for my five friends but it's like anyone can see it you know anyone who's got access to it i was just thinking that when the earliest i used a computer was probably like the third grade and we had a Macintosh fl- old floppy disk and Oregon Trail. That was the game that we played. <laughs> Died probably every single time. I don't think I ever played that game. I, other oh, people no. I knew played it, but I was not a computer person. I was not, I, I like, lagged behind everybody else with technology. I always made the joke. I was like Alan Grant in Jurassic Park. I was always <laughs> very like not trusting of technology. I still don't have a smartphone. I still have a flip phone. Just a few years ago, I went and bought a new flip phone when my old <laughs> flip phone died. So I'm definitely still not like fully integrated technology wise. I know how to use the smartphone. My husband has one. So I do have at least a vague idea of how they work. But yeah, so I mean, my so in some ways, like I felt like I lagged behind everybody. So I knew people who played 
played Oregon Trail, but I never played it because I'm like, what is that computer? What is that? <laughs> I don't play that. Bentley, Bentley Little, I think, doesn't even, I've, I've heard he doesn't even have an email. And then Thomas, like other big authors like Thomas Harris doesn't, he, he looked for him in interviews. You won't, you'll find like two or three in total. It's, it's crazy because some of them can't afford to not be, you know, on, on the uh, radar, I guess. The reclusive writer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that used to be much more of a thing, right? Like it's less of a thing now. It's, you know, now it's much more of, I just saw somebody today talking about how like as writers, we're all products, we're all a product in one way or the other. And I'm like, with social media, that makes it very easy. But I'm always like, but that's like capitalism. We're all giving in to runaway capitalism. We're not (laughs) products, we're people. Even though I realize, you know, we we are products. And by all technicalities, our books absolutely are products, right? Like there's (laughs) something you buy. It's it's like a good service thing. But it is weird and it is this kind of thing of like, you know, having to present yourself in a certain way or knowing that, you know, there's a persona aspect to all of this, which mm-hmm. is very strange. Sometimes I think that can help at least give us some division between who who we are in everyday life and, and kind of the, the author aspect of it. But sometimes also I think it can be easy to get lost in it. I've definitely seen writers that I think get lost in their own persona online and you start thinking like, I think you're really buying into your own hype a little bit. All <laughs> three of us have names circulating in our heads right now, but we won't, we won't throw them out there. I so wanted to ask you that question if you've ever experienced that and you just answered it. Because I do so- think that the um the 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 two things that we've been talking about for the last five minutes like definitely come together here. Cause there's you know, if you on the surface level, if you say social media is what you're kind of selling yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people will look at that and say, we're writers, we're not, we're people, we're not products. Mm-hmm. And there's validity mm-hmm. to that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, be- with social media being such a part of how books are peddled these days, mm-hmm. it's not just a matter of, you know, making yourself a product is if you go online and you act like a complete and utter turd, I'm not going to buy your book. Like if, <laughs> if your persona is you're a jackass, yep. then <laughs> I, yeah. I think there's a balancing act there. There is, because if somebody's not really active on social media, I would absolutely still read their book. But if they're a total jerk mm-hmm. on social media, that absolutely is like, no, no, absolutely. I have no interest in that. Like, there's no way I'm going to go out of my way to read somebody who's like not nice to people. Right. And like, you also have to be, I also try to give people some latitude because maybe if they were just, maybe if I see something, they were just in a bad mood that day. I try to be like, you know, or maybe there's more going on between two people that I know because there's lots of like petty grudges in the writing community which is like I didn't realize that when I got started and then you find out people don't like each other that all of a sudden somebody doesn't like you and you're not even sure why and then it's like kind of like now that I've been doing it like there was a period of time like oh this is the worst thing ever this is awful and now I've moved to like a new stage where I'm like it's fine as long as somebody isn't doing like as long obviously any kind of abusive behavior totally different thing but sometimes like I remember there would be people are like that person didn't make direct eye contact with me at a convention when they said hi and I'm like I don't think that's enough of a reason for me not to speak to them okay you can hate them you can hate them I mean it like you are allowed to hate anybody for any reason you want and I really genuinely believe that in life like if somebody hates me for something petty I'm not gonna like try to like present a case to be like no you really shouldn't hate me you go on hating me that's completely fine but I might not hate somebody for something you know like direct Mm -hmm. eye contact at a convention I think a lot of us don't make direct eye contact anyways because we're socially awkward writers right so I mean I don't think that that's a fair like 
standard for anybody. <laughs> yeah. There's such a high school mentality that too, you know, they, it, I don't like that person. So you can't sit at their lunch table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no, thank I, you. <laughs> I made I made a tweet where I said something to the effect of um, just treat social media. Like you're uh, selling yourself to someone you might, I, man, I'm fucking this up. Basically <laughs> you got to present yourself where, you don't want to make potential publishers or potential agents or other authors. You might want to have a blurb from or something. Um, just tr- try to, you know, be the best you can. Mm-hmm. And I don't reply to shit like this anymore, but that got like, it's like I personally insulted their mother <laughs> the way that some people reacted. And all and like, I don't know how other people read it because I don't ask them, but I'm just genuinely trying to offer advice that I've heard and I think works and is wise. And um, and some people were like, I'm just going to be myself. It's like I'm, all I meant was don't be a dick. Yeah, yeah, just, <laughs> well, just, just be it. nice. You overthought it. Don't be a jackass. <laughs> yeah. A very, very hard sentiment to go on and comment and disagree with. Yeah. And then they'd be like, who, the, who are you? Jerk. Um, Brennan, do you want to go to the outro questions or you got anything else? I want to throw uh, one more thing. Uh, that's too many. To writing real quick. Yeah, that's fine. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> shut up over there. Um, so <laughs> um, with Gwendolyn, with you coming on, I uh, took it as an opportunity to go through my shelf and read all the stuff that I've been meaning to get to. And I fell in love with this book and her smile will untether the universe. I firmly believe, and I'm not just blowing smoke. This is one of the best debut collections, collections that I have read. Um, And I, I think it just comes from a place where it's so hard for an anthology or even a single author collection to have hit after hit after hit after hit because you want some like diversity. Uh, But this one, this one pulls it off and it's a big part of that is because of that variety. So I I was hoping that you could talk about, you know, whether it's in this collection or writing in general um, about variety in textures, point of views, namely second person, which is used used a couple times in there um, that, People don't always love, but you got bold with it. Brennan, um, Brennan raise, the, raise the book again. I want to take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, but, but so, I mean, when you approach storytelling, again, whether you're developing a, a group of stories for a collection or just writing to write, how do you approach kind of the different textures that go into them? You know, a lot of times it just feels like whatever is right for that given story is really how I approach it. And I do try to write in a lot of different point of view. So I do that that collection has, you know, third person. It definitely has first person and it has a number of second person, which I just love. I'm finishing up a story right now that's second person. I think the last short story I wrote was second person. I just I think it's such an interesting device. You know, it 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 puts the reader right in there and can also have this kind of disorienting effect on, on the reader. And especially when the story itself has that kind of disorientation and sort of the person who feels fragmented, for example, that, that makes the, that gives the sense of frag, fragmentation. And, you know, when I was putting together that collection, I really was looking at, you know, what I had published up until that point. And then a few stories that were unpublished and really just saying, you know, how can I, 
have a collection that hopefully feels, you know, thematically connected, but at the same time, isn't the same thing again and again. And so it's like, you know, there's some stories in there that are very much what I would just say, pure horror. There's no, I don't think there's any genre you could put them in bad horror. And then there's other ones that are definitely horror, but they might be more body horror. There's ones that are body horror and fairy tale or dark fantasy and trying to just go, you know, with different settings, different time periods, I think to some extent. And, you know, just really just writing. I, I always say this and I feel like I sound like a broken record, but just really writing the stories that you want to read. And, you know, I always think like, what stories would I've really liked to have read, you know, as a teenager or in my early twenties, especially when you're really trying to figure out your way in the world. Not that I think necessarily you ever stop trying to figure out your way in the world. I feel sometimes I'm more lost now, you know, approaching 40 than I was at 20. But, you know, I, I do think that there is that kind of continuous coming of age as, as a human being, but in particular when you're young and really trying to trying to figure things out you know what stories did I want to read then and I just kind of think you know okay I'm writing I'm writing for that person who was trying to find her way in the world and and kind of just you know taking that approach when I'm when I'm creating stories but thank you for all those nice things to say about my collection because that's like I that's still like one of I'm very proud of that I don't want to say that's my favorite book that I ever wrote but it's like got a very special place in my heart because it was my first book and it felt like just like you put the first book out there in the world as a writer and you're like, I don't know what this is going to do. I don't know how anybody's going to react to this, but like, that's always a pretty, pretty big moment for a writer. Oh, I actually didn't know your first was a collection. Was that, was that, uh, was that a scary choice to make? Cause I've heard that collections are, um, that they're hard to do with being your first book out there without anything else. I, I have no idea what the difference would be. You know, I don't, you know, there, there's no, there's no, I, I would love to meet the alternate Gwendolyn, the alternate world Gwendolyn that put out a novel <laughs> first. How did that go for you? Let's compare notes. I don't know. I don't know that I'd ever heard that, but I could see what you're saying with it, that most people I do think probably start with a novella or a novel. And for me, I just always loved short stories. Again, we talked about Bradbury kind of coming back around to the beginning. You know, I loved his short stories. I loved Edgar. Allan Poe's short stories. I love Stephen King's short stories. I still think, I actually think I like his short fiction better than his long fiction, which is, like, you know, mm. a lot of people are like, don't say that. But I'm like, I like it. I like his short fiction. I feel like I, I'm pretty sure that's what I came to first. Sometimes I think I'd probably say Carrie, but I think that was my first novel of his that I, I read. But I think I read this. Yeah, I definitely read a short fiction first. And so yeah, I just always loved it. So it, it really wasn't like, oh, no, I'm going to be doing a short story collection. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be doing a short story collection. This is exciting. This is fun. And then from there, I think that I did a novella and then I did a novel. So it felt like this kind of progression. And mm. not that I necessarily think that's, you know, that you level up to the novel. That's how I feel like we're treated, that you have to have a novel. But, you know, I mean, I still don't think uh, the author Kelly Link has a novel. She just does this great short fiction. So I definitely don't think you have to do novels, but... I like all of them. I like all, you know, I like every yeah. length of, of fiction. So I'm like, I'm good. Whatever I'm doing, as long as I'm writing, I'm happy. Yeah. I mean, I, I got, I got no idea if it's true or not. I just, I was curious. Brent, take us away, sir. Um, I was just going to throw out there, you know, I mentioned point of view and stuff like that. You mentioned subject matter, which I think is huge. I mean, it, I, I, looking over the table of contents, like when you, if you pick like, man in the ambry and tower princesses and tell somebody yes this is the same author like oh okay <laughs> all right <laughs> um, Love that you but it those does too. those are pretty different stories yeah <laughs> 
but but they're both like wonderful in in their own you know uh, they they unapologetically each set out to do something and pull it off um without fear of oh you know i wrote a scary story uh as story number one now i have to top it or uh relate everything back to it no mm-hmm. it's just it's it's what stories are supposed to be it's 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 great it's entertaining and it makes you think and it makes you feel and it doesn't um uh feel tied down to certain parameters um and i think that's kind of the strength that makes it succeed patrick you want to uh take us to our wrap yeah uh where can people follow you Uh, We've been talking all about social media. So on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and I also have my website and my blog. I try to, I still have a blog. I feel like blogs are not a thing that most people have, but I still have one because like I said, I'm a little old school. I'm lagging behind everybody else, but GwendolynKeist.com. And then you can just search my name. I think I'm at Gwendolyn Keist on all three. So social media sites. Excellent. Uh, Do you have any final thoughts? This was a lot of fun. This was yeah. a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, I wanted to wait until the end, but uh, as soon as we started talking, I could feel your energy. And I wanted to say, like, we got to get you on for like a guest host spot. <laughs> so, or come back on for a panel or something. We'd love to have you back in any way. Um, Brennan, final thoughts, yeah. Brennan. Uh, echo that a lot of fun you know i'm i'm glad we could uh make this episode work i know that uh it didn't work out in december but we're so happy to have you here and be able to talk reluctant immortals among lots and lots of other things so thank you for a really fun conversation thank you so much for having me my final thoughts are that when we do talk about politics it's not like directly talk about politics like we did it it brings out some weird reactions out of the blue like i got a i never check our reviews but i randomly did on apple Podcasts, and someone someone gave us a two-star review and basically said we're an instructive podcast but he didn't like the direction how we weren't we're going against like republican point of views and stuff and, and kind of took a shot at every single guest in one sentence i forgot what it was but he still gave us two stars and said but they are instructive. So it was confusing. It's like, I don't like that they're not on my side, but check it out. <laughs> Decide for yourself about these people. That's what they're saying. <laughs> we, I mean, we got over 150 episodes. We don't have anyone on that has ever really been opposed to, like we said, the groups that we all are kind of in. If you're an artist, for the most part, you're probably more liberally leaning. Anyway, so yeah. I, I don't really know a whole lot of artists that are the uh, opposite of that. Um, you have to use your brain to create art. So <laughs> I like I like Banksy, that artist. He's 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 awesome. He's uh, you want to talk about standing up for rights. That guy does that all the time or girl. I don't know. I actually don't know who Banksy is. That's yeah, part, that's their yeah, thing. I'm not sure their gender. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm not sure their gender. Yeah, I said he. Oh, man. Yeah, it's built into me, damn it. <laughs> My final thoughts are, Brendan Shaky said, I'm fired. You got to get Quinella to replace me. She's better. <laughs> are that, no, I really, I, I'm glad that we did hold off um, because this is an excellent book, and I really do hope that people uh, pick it up and check it out. And um, I really hope you write historical horror or fiction again. Um, sure. Would, 
<laughs> would it ever tackle a Vietnam War character? Is that something that interests you enough to actually tackle that? I don't know. I mean, there, there's the Vietnam veteran in Electric Immortals. And I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I really feel like that should be something, you know, especially if you're centering that character, somebody who actually has been in war, or has been a soldier. I do feel that those are important narratives, but I feel like I'm okay with having, you know, writing a character, you know, as a supporting character. But I, I would really like to, I would like to see that more from somebody who can really, you know, talk about that in a way that I don't feel like maybe I can. Okay. Oh, that's that's fair. Um, everybody, next episode is 159 with Michael J. Seidlinger, and he is the author of Anybody Home. Yeah, um, I'm really excited about that. He's he's an interesting guy. Real friendly dude. Um, and as always, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. Uh-huh.